always encouraging to be reminded that God is with us, that we don't have to be afraid. And uh, that's not song. That's not. Those are not words that are unique to this author, um, David Haas. But he draws those from the scriptures, obviously, and speaks on behalf of Christ there. And so, thankful for the promise of that text. This morning we'll be in John chapter one, and we're finishing up this chapter here, John chapter one, verses thirty-five to fifty-one. John the Baptist has been pointing his followers and us to look to Jesus. John the Baptist was nothing special. He was simply the one who paved the way for the Messiah King. But now here at the end of chapter 1, the transition happens between John the Baptist's followers and Jesus' followers. That, that the followers of John the Baptist who recognize his message that he's actually pointing to the Messiah will actually turn and follow Jesus and they'll point others to do the same. So that the first person who hears testifies about him. And then that testimony is passed on to the next person, and then that person hears and responds, and he passes it on to the next person. And so see if you can see this chain of, of um, testimony or witness to the, the truth about Jesus in this text as I read it. Beginning in verse 35. This is the word of God. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus returned, uh, turned and saw them following and said to, him, to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, Where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, now the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Here in this last part of John chapter 1, the, the theme, from what I can tell, is that followers of Jesus testify about Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. 
And as people see that, they believe. And as they believe, the very first and natural thing that they do is they go and tell the people that they know about this Jesus. The refrain throughout this text is, come and see. When when Nathaniel questions whether there can be any good thing that comes out of Nazareth, Philip says, come and see for yourself. It reminds me of how my parents came to Christ back in the late 70s. Uh, they were both Catholic, grew up Catholic. My dad was an altar boy. And... Um, my aunt and uncle had been witnessing to them for a long time, praying that they had they would come to Christ several months at least because they were new Christians themselves, my aunt and uncle. And my parents were resistant to the call of the gospel at that time, didn't want to hear it, they didn't want to change, they were fine. My sister was born, um, my twin sisters were born, and uh, the older one of the two died after three weeks. And that shook my parents and it caused them to realize particularly uh, in the stages of grief started to realize there must be something more to life this can't be it and the only thing they could think of is to look to my aunt and uncle who they had seen a change in and so they went and talked to them and said "What, what, what is it that's different about you can you please tell us this gospel my aunt and uncle were not skilled enough to be able to explain the whole gospel to my parents. And so they essentially said, come and see. Come and see for yourself. Listen to this gospel for yourself. So the best place they could do, obviously Jesus has gone on into heaven, so they can't take my parents to Jesus himself. So they took took my parents to their church in Taylor, and um, the first message that my parents heard preached in a Baptist church was, a message on the oil crisis and my aunt and uncle were distraught how could this possibly happen the one time that they finally come to church my pastor preaches on the oil crisis and um, um, thankfully that wasn't the last time that they darkened the door of the church they came back again and again and heard the gospel over course, the course of, the, of several weeks and God saved them and, um, and it happened through people that they knew and, and if you think about it, the way that you heard the gospel mo- was most likely not through a stranger. Now, some people get saved that way. That's, that's going to happen. In fact, throughout the book of Acts, you see that kind of thing where Paul's just working through his journey and he'll come up to people and, and just start talking to them about the gospel. Uh, the Philippian jailer, for example. But, but most often, it's through the people that you know. The, the circles of influence you now have You tell them. They see a difference in you. You tell them about this Jesus that you follow and love. And and you pray for them. You you tell them to come and see him for for themselves. Look into the scriptures for yourself and see this Jesus. And they come to Christ. That's how you likely came to Christ. That's how I came to Christ through people that I know. And that seems to be the pattern of this text as well. That the followers, genuine followers of Jesus, they testify about Jesus both with their lives and with their mouths by actually speaking the gospel. So let's see if we can see this in the text. First, in verses 35 through 49, followers of Jesus testify about Jesus, beginning with John the Baptist. John the Baptist has been in the wilderness proclaiming the message of the kingdom, calling people to repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel is the good news 
that the long-expected Messiah has come in the person of Jesus of the Nazarene. This Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for is now here in Jesus of Nazareth. And it was at this point in history when this was made clear. Prior to this, they didn't know his name. No one knew that his name would be Jesus. And, and now it's clear through the person of John the Baptist. Because when Jesus is baptized, the Father apparently makes it clear to John the Baptist that this is the Son of God. We see the testimony of John the Baptist in verses 35 and 36. Notice how our text begins. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. So, two of John's own followers, they're hearing this message of repentance and belief. And then John says in verse 36, Behold the Lamb of God. So now here, this is the come and see kind of part of John the Baptist. Here he is. Look at him for yourself. Hear from him. Learn from him. John the Baptist is proclaiming Christ. This is what he has been doing. And now he knows who this Christ is. It's Jesus. So he tells his two followers. And the response is one of acceptance. And I say that this is Andrew and John here on the, on the outline here. John the Baptist testifies about Jesus to Andrew and John. And I say Andrew and John. Well, we know it's Andrew because um, in um, verse 40, it says one of the two who heard John the Baptist speak and follow him was Andrew. So we know one of them was Andrew. And the other seems to be John um, basically because John doesn't mention his own name. In fact, throughout his whole gospel, he doesn't mention his own name. He often refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved, but never refers to his own name. And here he seems to know the exact time of day in which it happens. Notice at the end of verse 39. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. So um, obviously those, those aren't ironclad um, arguments that, that guarantee that this was John the Apostle who was the other disciple, but it seems to me, and many scholars agree, that this very likely was both Andrew and John. John the Baptist was not in the business of gaining followers for himself in order to, to get money or acclaim or power. It was about pointing people to Jesus. Remember, he said, I, when they asked, who are you then, John? If you're not, if you're not um, the prophet, if you're not the Messiah, the Christ, if you're not Elijah, then who are you? And his response is, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. That's what we saw last time. That he's saying, I'm the pointer, the herald. That's my job. My job is not to gain followers for myself, but to point people to Christ. And that's exactly what he does. And they respond with faith. Notice in verse 38. The two, uh, verse 37, the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. So John the Baptist's testimony works in this case, God allows them to believe. Verse 38, And Jesus turned and saw them, the two disciples, following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? So they don't really answer Jesus' question. Jesus' question is, what are you looking for? And instead of saying, we're looking for the Messiah, or we, we've been studying the Old Testament, and we know that there's Messiah coming, and John the Baptist is saying that, that there is a Messiah and we want to make sure this is all true. They don't say any of that. Instead they say, where are you staying? 
Or to put it another way, maybe a modern equivalent might be, how much time do you have? Right? Where are you staying? Because we need to go and sit down. We can't just say this in passing, what we're looking for. We need to talk about this. And I think in this way, they're revealing their faith. Notice how they refer to him as rabbi or teacher of Israel. And so Jesus asks them to come and act on their faith. Verse 39, he says, come and see. And so they came and saw where he was staying. And apparently this led to a conversation between Jesus and these two men. So this is part of acting on our faith. It's first to come and see. Second is to follow Christ. And then third is to testify about him. So what happens when Andrew begins following Jesus? John the Baptist testifies to his two disciples, Andrew and this other one. What happens when Andrew begins following Jesus? Notice verses 40 through 42. When Andrew begins following Jesus, he testifies about Jesus to Peter. One of the two who heard John speak and follow him and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he, Andrew, found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. This is like my aunt and uncle to my parents. We have found him. When they found the Messiah, they wanted to tell the people that they knew. This is what Andrew does to his brother Simon. And the message of Andrew is, at the end of verse 41, this is the Messiah. John, the the Gospel writer, puts in parentheses there, which translated means Christ. He recognizes that he has some Jewish readers, but a lot of Gentile readers, and so Gentile readers most likely wouldn't know what these terms meant. The word Messiah comes from the Hebrew. It's Meshiach is the Hebrew word. And so it's translated in the Greek Messiah and in the English Messiah. But the the Greek word for Messiah is actually Christos, which we translate Christ. So those words mean exactly the same thing. They're not two different titles. They don't mean two different things. They're exactly the same thing. One's Hebrew, one's Greek. John's trying to help us to see that. Simon's response is seen in verse 42. He brought him to Jesus. And then Jesus is going to change his name. But, but if Andrew was to bring Simon to Jesus, then that requires that Simon does not resist Andrew. Say, no, I'm not interested. Kind of like my parents at the beginning of my aunt and uncle's testimony to them. We're not interested. Simon doesn't say that. Instead he says, it's a game, too, isn't it? Simon says, uh, I'm going to come. I'm not going to resist. And when he meets Jesus for himself, Jesus changes his name, Simon's name, to reflect who he will become. Notice what he changes it to. He changes it to Cephas, which is translated Peter. So just another way to say Cephas, Peter. And both of these names mean rock. That is that Peter will become one of the rocks of the church, one of the key foundation stones for the establishment of Christ's church. So Simon uh, responds to the message that is given to him by Andrew. So when Andrew hears about Jesus from John the Baptist, he believes, and then he testifies about Jesus to his brother Simon. But in verses 43 through 44, Andrew is not done testifying about Jesus because here he testifies about Jesus to Philip. Andrew testifies about Jesus to Philip. 
Now the basic reading of the English text seems to indicate that this is Jesus who purposed to go to Galilee. And so when you were reading this, when we were reading this together, you probably were thinking Jesus, and maybe even as you look at it now, you're thinking it still is Jesus. Verse 43, notice, the next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, follow me. And, and why do we think that that's talking about Jesus? Well, if you have a New American Standard, you have a capital H for each of the pronouns he, right? Which indicates what? That that's probably, that's not probably, that is talking about Jesus. It's talking about deity. Whenever you have a capital letter H, that's not at the beginning of the sentence, that's talking about deity. And so when we see that, it, it just automatically clues us in. The next day, Jesus purposed to go into Galilee, and Jesus found Philip, and Jesus said to him. But there, there are three reasons why I think this is not referring to Jesus that rather these first two pronouns, he and he, in verse 43, are referring to Andrew. Reason number one, the grammar allows for Andrew to be the pronoun antecedent. The grammar allows for Andrew to be the pronoun antecedent. Now, we're going to have to step back into school, going back into our English class to think about this for a second. Because the pronoun antecedent is... It's the nearest noun, proper noun in this case, that, that relates to this pronoun. So where is this pronoun, what is this pronoun pointing back to? Is it pointing back to Jesus or is it pointing back to Andrew? I'm suggesting it points back to Andrew, and I think the grammar allows for that. Here's why. You need to recognize that in the Greek language there are no capital letters like we have. So we know if something's a proper noun, if a proper pronoun in this case, if it has a capital letter. But in the Greek, the early Greek, Koine Greek, it was all written in lowercase letters. And then later on they switched to capital letters, all capital letters. But there was no like distinguishing of proper nouns from, from uh, regular nouns. And so what that means is when you see the capital letter H's in here, in your English translation, anywhere in the Bible, those are actually translations that the English uh, translators are making for you. So if you go back to the Greek, it just says the word he, and you can't tell if it's Jesus or Andrew. <coughs> so the NASB translates he with the capital H. The NIV, ESV, and KJV all supply the word Jesus. So if you have something other than NASB, you're reading actually the word Jesus, that Jesus purposed to go into Galilee. So they supply the word, even though that word's not actually there in the Greek. They're trying to help you understand the text, and that's what translators do. So don't, don't think that they're trying to change the text on you or anything. But I think these first two pronouns here are he, and they are referring to Andrew, because Andrew finds Peter, right? Andrew's responsibility when he hears the message is to testify about Jesus and pass this on to, uh, excuse me, to Philip. He finds he finds Peter in verse 41, his brother. And then it seems like the, the flow of the text is that he finds Philip in verse 43. And this makes sense because Philip's actually from the same town as Andrew and Peter. And so it, 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 is, it would follow that, that Andrew would find one of his close friends that he grew up with, perhaps. So I think the grammar allows for Andrew to be the pronoun antecedent, not Jesus. But also... Number two, the second reason I think that this is referring to Andrew is that the grammar points to Andrew. 
as the pronoun antecedent. Look at the reading of the text carefully in verse 43. Because here, Andrew finds Philip, and then it switches over to Jesus in the last line, and Jesus said to him. So let's just take, for example, that this is actually talking about Jesus in the entire verse. Would this make a whole lot of sense to say it this way? Verse 43. The next day he, Jesus, purposed to go into Galilee, and he, Jesus, found Philip, and Jesus said to him. Now, we've already been talking about Jesus, so why add Jesus on the last line? Right? If you're talking about something that's happened, and you're still talking about the same person, you don't change from the pronoun back to the proper noun. You just keep using the word, the the pronoun, the he. And so... It doesn't make sense to change the last line to Jesus. But it does make sense if this is referring to Andrew in the first two lines. Right? The next day, he, Andrew, purposed to go into Galilee. And he, Andrew, found Philip. And if they put he there again, then it would, it would be wrong. Because Andrew's not calling for Philip to follow him. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one. And so I think what John's doing is showing us that Andrew is the one who finds Philip. And then thirdly, the third reason I think this is Andrew, not Jesus, in these pronouns at the beginning of verse 43 is because it better fits the chain of testimony in the passage. What has been the chain of testimony? John the Baptist testifies about Jesus to Andrew and John. Andrew testifies about Jesus to Simon. Andrew testifies about Jesus to Peter. And then Philip, or excuse me, to Philip. And then Philip testifies to Nathaniel. So if this is talking about Jesus, then I think it, it breaks up that chain of testimony that's going on from John the Baptist to Andrew to Philip to Nathaniel. And so that's um, my understanding of these two texts. And it seems to go along with verse 44, which tells where Philip is from, from the same city. It seems to imply that Jesus is not the one seeking him out, um, but it's actually uh, Jesus seeking him out through the person of Andrew, effectively. So, here's the final link in the chain. Verses 45 through 49. Philip testifies about Jesus to Nathanael. Philip testifies to Nathanael in verses 45 through 49. Verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also in the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Notice how he refers to Jesus. He doesn't call him the promised one. He doesn't call him the Messiah. He says the one about whom Moses and, prophet, and the prophets wrote. It's effectively saying the same thing. Do you know the one that was promised and would come and redeem us? That would save His people from our, our, their sins? That, that's Him. This is, this is He. It's Jesus of Nazareth. He's the promised one of the Old Testament. Nathaniel is not convinced initially. Notice verse 46. Nathaniel said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel would know. Nathaniel was from Cana in a northern town of Galilee. Galilee was despised in general by, the, by Israel. But, but Nathaniel was from a northern town. And he knew, about, he knew about Nazareth, which was a southern town, a smaller town, about 2,000 people. And he knew it was despised even more than any other town in Galilee. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And, and frankly, that doesn't fit with the Old Testament narrative because the Messiah was supposed to come from Bethlehem. We know, in fact, that the Messiah did come from Bethlehem, but he shortly thereafter, because of persecution, moved up to Nazareth. And, um, and that's why he's known for being from Nazareth, even though he wasn't born there. 
but Nathanael is not initially uh, convinced. And so Philip responds wisely at the end of verse 46, come and see. Come and see for yourself. And then in verses 47 and 48, we see that Jesus knows his followers before his followers know him. In verse 47, Jesus meets Nathanael. Nathanael does come and see. And Jesus welcomes him as a follower. And Nathanael responds with a bit of surprise. How do you know me? He says. Uh, uh, He says in verse 48. How is it that you know me? And Jesus responds by saying, Listen, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, it's hard to know exactly what's going on here. What, what did Jesus see under the fig tree? And how does Nathaniel respond? And what does that mean to Nathaniel? It seems to be something supernatural, though, because notice Nathaniel's response in verse 49. As soon as Jesus said, I, When you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Nathaniel responds by saying what? In verse 49. Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. What did he say before? And Philip said, We have found the promised one, the Messiah. The one whom Moses and the prophets had talked about. What was his response initially? Uh, Does really anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, when Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree, he responds by saying, wow, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Philip was right. So whatever this is that Jesus saw, Nathaniel is clear about it. And some scholars suggest that He had some kind of experience under the fig tree or there was some specific fig tree where Nathaniel would go to try to find out or study the scriptures or find out more about God and and the future. And apparently, um, Nathaniel knew exactly what he was talking about. Whatever the case is, remember, Nathaniel is far north of where Jesus is at this time. That is his home where the fig tree likely would have been. Jesus never would have been up in that area in, in Nathaniel's view and and he's basically saying, listen, I was there when that happened. Nathaniel's thinking the only person that could be there would be God. And so what a change from skepticism, apparently, can anything good come out of Nazareth, to belief. You are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Now this is an amazing confession, especially since if you think of the other Gospels, it seems like the disciples are slow, aren't they? They're slow to understand who Jesus is. Um, they're trying to figure out as he's calming the wind and the waves, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Right? Who can calm the storm and feed 5,000 and, and heal the sick? Who, who does this? Who raises the dead? And they finally come to a point where, the, where Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So how is it that Nathaniel makes this claim early on? Right? If, if they're slow to get this, then how can Nathaniel make this claim. And and the fact is that I think Peter and the other disciples recognized that Jesus was the Messiah right from the beginning. The only thing, it was an incomplete understanding, right? It's kind of like how we come to Christ. We believe and recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, but it's not complete. We still have a lot more to learn. It's it's like the story of the the man that Jesus healed in stages, right? Where he he healed him from his blindness in Mark chapter 8. First, he could see just blurry people walking around like trees, but then Jesus healed them again. He touched his eyes again. That's effectively, I think, what needs to happen, that there is an initial sight that's given, but there's more clarity to come and that God does both of those works. And and uh, so Nathaniel's uh, acknowledgement of Jesus as the Messiah is not inconsistent with the rest of the Scriptures. 
Finally, in verses 50 and 51, we have a conversation between Jesus and Nathaniel. And we learn that followers of Jesus are open to greater revelation or they're put in a position where God can give them greater revelation. And that's what Jesus says to Nathaniel in verse 50. He said, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? So, see, again, we see that something happened when Jesus declared that he saw him under the fig tree. That's when Nathaniel believed. But notice what he says at the end of verse 50. You will see greater things than these. Something supernatural is coming where these mir- that you're going to see something that makes it very obvious that I am the Messiah. You believe with just this one statement that I made to you. I saw you under the fig tree. But I'm going to show you something much greater. I'm going to show you some greater signs, we could say, or miracles. And, and obviously culminating in the greatest of miracles with the resurrection from the dead. Notice the nature of this coming revelation in verse 51. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This uh, reference here by Jesus goes back to Genesis 28. Remember when Jacob had a dream? And where he saw the ladder that went up to heaven and there were angels of God ascending and descending on Jacob. And the point of that was to show that Jacob was a recipient of greater revelation not everyone got that dream. Not everyone got the, the, the amount of revelation that Jacob got, but he did. And Jacob's response to that was, how awesome is this place? And what Jesus is saying to Nathaniel is, listen, stick around, Nathaniel. Continue to follow me, and I'm going to show you something greater. It's not going to be angels descending and, and, and ascending on Jacob, but they're going to be descending on me. And the point is is that I'm going to give you a greater amount of revelation than than has been seen in all of Old Testament history combined. That the glory of Christ is going to be clearly unveiled to the disciples through His miracles and through His teaching. And if they will just stick around, if they will come and see and follow Him, then they will see these things even in a greater way than Jacob did couple principles to consider as we conclude today. Number one, it's clear, again, that Jesus is the Christ. This text gives us a number of names or titles that we have for Jesus again. In verses 35 and 36, he's called the Lamb of God. In verse 37 through 39, he's called the Teacher of Israel. In verses 40 through 46, we see him as the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. The Son of God in verses 47 through 50, and then the Son of Man in verse 51. And so the, the largest point that comes from John's Gospel is that these things are written so that you and I would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing that you would have life through His name. So this is what we cannot miss. Even when we have these other texts that talk about how disciples become witnesses to the truth, We cannot miss the clear point of the text, which is, uh, of the larger text, that is, that that Jesus is the Christ. And so our response should be to believe. We must believe that he is the Christ. What did each of these disciples do when they heard about him? Well, they came and saw for themselves. Sometimes they were initially skeptical, but they eventually came and saw and they believed the message that they heard. They inquired further. They followed him. Maybe you're in a 
state right now of skepticism. You don't know for sure if Jesus is the Messiah. Well, can I encourage you just to come and see. See Jesus for yourself in the pages of Scripture. Read the text for yourself. Come and hear the, the text preached. And you, um, if God is gracious, will believe as well. And so we should follow their example to believe that Jesus is the Christ and continue to, to be grounded in that great truth. And then, thirdly, we need to recognize that our belief in Him results in our witness for Him. Our belief in Him results in our witness for Him. This seems to be the pattern of the early followers of Jesus Christ. From here in John's Gospel to the book of Acts and beyond, that it is that, that believers, when they find out about Christ, they, they testify about Him to the people that they know. Sometimes we make evangelism so complicated. Like we have to go make all these new relationships. We've got to go find all these new people. And there is a sense in which we need to go into the world and make disciples. So we need to have people that are doing that. But, but the general pattern of Scripture is to start with the people that we know. Start with the people who are already in our family that don't believe. Start with the people in our neighborhood and in our jobs that don't believe. You might not even know where to start with them. You might say, you know, I've known them for years and I don't even know what to say. But I would say the best place to start is with a prayer to God to ask for help. God, I don't know what to do. Start relying on Him. Pray for that person by name daily, regularly. Ask God to change their hearts because ultimately that's what has to happen. And then pray for opportunities to, to, to proclaim the gospel to them, to share with them, to answer questions. And expect that it's not going to happen right away, right? You, when you first heard the gospel, you likely didn't respond on the first time you heard it. So just take some time. Recognize that, that God has his own clock as to when he will draw people to himself. And, and seek to, to build a long-term relationship with that person. Certainly recognize there's urgency, right? We don't want to just become lazy and go, well, we got all, all the time in the world. People don't know how much longer they have. I mean, they could die at the age of 60 or they could die at the age of 30. They don't know. So there is a sense of urgency. But at the same time, um, we don't have to just kind of vomit the entire gospel out of them all at once and expect them to accept it. We can give it to them in stages, and as, as they understand it, we, we help them to understand the next step and, and so on. Like, you know, let's talk about your sin because that's the foundation, the why you need a Savior. And then before we get into the, the future and what, what heaven is and all that, let's, let's start with the very beginning of the gospel, which is we, are, we need a Savior because we're sinners. And uh, that may take days or weeks, may, they may understand that already. So you might be able to move on to the next phase very quickly. The point is, is, is recognize this as a relationship that needs to be established. But the testimony seems to be, or the pattern I should say, should, seems to be that John the Baptist testifies to Andrew and John. Andrew testifies to Peter and Philip. Philip testifies to Nathaniel. And the message continues to go on. We have this pyramid type of approach that God has made where the, the message of Christ just continues to, to, uh, to, to exponentially grow, right? It starts out with just a few people and then it just continues to grow and grow as, as each person shares the message of the gospel with the people that they know. And then 
here's a, a point that we'll see as we continue to get into John's gospel, but just want to mention it uh, here, and that is that God is behind it all. God is the one who prompts his followers to come to him, and we'll see this more, especially in chapters 6 and 10. But for now, we need to see that Jesus knows us before we know him. And, and the, the main way we saw that today was with Nathaniel, right? When he says to Nathaniel in verse 47, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel says, How in the world do you know me? How could you possibly know who I am? And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. I know you. In other words, Jesus knows you, Nathaniel. You're seeking out, you think you're seeking out me, the Messiah. But I've actually sought you out, Nathaniel. And so God is behind it all. And because of that, we can be sure that that all of God's sheep will come into the fold. There's, he's not going to leave one outside. That, oh, well, somebody failed, and so he, that person is not going to be able to make it to heaven. No, God's going to make it possible for every single person to come. That doesn't eliminate us, or that doesn't exclude us from our responsibility to tell, because the way that God brings them is, is through our voice and our testimony. But it does mean that God is sovereign over it all, and we can trust Him. And so we... That's why we pray, frankly. I mean, if you, if you pray at all, it's because you believe in a sovereign God, right? You believe that you can't do it yourself. You need God to do a work that you can't do. That's why we pray for someone to get saved. If we could close the deal on our own, we wouldn't even pray. But we do pray because we need God to change the heart, right? And so God is sovereign over all this. He's going to bring about, I mean... Just think about all the circumstances that had to come into play for you to hear the gospel and respond with faith. I mean, I was just talking to you earlier about my parents' situation, how God ordained all of that to be set up at the perfect time that my sister would die and that that would have the kind of effect that it did on them and that they would have this close relationship with my aunt and uncle and that they would have a pastor who would be able to preach to them and share the gospel to them and that they, their, their hearts would be soft enough, despite the opposition that they would get from their other Catholic family members, right? God, God ordained it all, didn't he? And if you think about your circumstances in life, God was behind that as well. That he's orchestrating all the events of the universe to come into play to make exactly what he wants to happen to happen. There's no random chance that's going on in this universe. Everything is ordained. And the way that the proverb says is, even the lot cast in the lap is ordained by the Lord. Every time the dice is rolled, God has ordained it. It's not a surprise to him. And so we can trust him for the smallest areas of life, like the rolling of a, of a dice, to the largest area of someone's salvation. And so that's why we rely on him in prayer, and then we follow his, his, his word, which is to actually testify about him to others. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are reminded of your grace in our own salvation that when Jesus came to this earth, it was grace upon grace because that message has now spread forth to uh, thousands and countless millions of people who have heard this gospel and who have responded. And if we think about the course of history, just for the gospel to come from Jerusalem to one of the pockets of the uttermost parts of the earth, which is uh, southeast Michigan, where I got saved, and in any other part of the world where these 
people got saved. The, it's amazing to consider that the gospel, all the things that, that had to happen in for, the go, for the gospel to make it this far, and yet you caused it to happen. You caused us to be born into a country, many of us, that, that was free and that allowed the spread of the gospel very readily. Some of us immigrated here, and so you allowed us, allowed them to, to hear the gospel in that way. But whatever the case, Lord, you, Lord, you ordained all of that so we would be in just the proper place so that you could allow us, one of your servants to share the message of the truth and, and that you would draw us to salvation through your word, through your spirit. Thankful for that. And Lord, we don't want to sit on our hands now and act as if uh, you're sovereign, so you can just save whoever you want. We'll leave that up to you. Lord, you employ your people to, to do your work. And so we know that we are, in many ways, your hands, your voice to the, the world. That, as Paul says, how can they call on him in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? Um, how can anyone hear the gospel unless someone says something? And, and that's where we come in. We have this responsibility to take the gospel to the world. So help us not to to take a, a hyper-sovereignty extremist approach to life and float down the lazy river of life and expect that we don't have to do anything, but rather recognize that we have a responsibility to... to to, as Jim read earlier, to put on the whole armor of God and, and face this spiritual battle that we have because there are spiritual lives at stake. There are people who are hanging in the balance between heaven and hell. And one of the catalysts that you will use to, to, to either allow them to go on in, to an eternity in hell or to, to join you in heaven is, is our witness. And so we pray that you'd help us to recognize our responsibility Help us to be bold and courageous to speak the message without shame and to do it while relying on you because ultimately, Lord, we can't close the deal. We can't change their heart. We can't force them to believe. You are the one who has to give them a new heart. So would you do that, Lord, in the circles of influence that we have? Help us to think of specific ways in which we can do that through people that we know. And would you use us to, to bring more people into your future kingdom so that the name of Christ is exalted from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. May the name of the Lord be praised. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.